0: Good afternoon, and welcome to Vandevenor Black's presentation, Cultivating a Cannabis Business Under Virginia's New Marijuana Law. My name is Jonathan Gallo, and I'll be presenting today with Attorney Ann Bebo and Jeffrey Hempel of Vandevenor Black. And today we're going to go over some of the uh, basic highlights of uh, Virginia's new cannabis law. So first, a disclaimer. This presentation is for general advice. It is not legal or tax advice nor does it create an attorney-client relationship. And then another disclaimer, even though there's been a flurry of activity in Congress uh, and over the past several years with the issuance of the Cole Memo and then rescission of the Cole Memo by the Department of Justice and then the passage of the Blumenauer-McClintlock-Norton-Lee Budget Amendment and the House of Representatives last year related to the enforcement of uh, federal marijuana laws, Possession using, distributing, and or selling marijuana or marijuana-based products is illegal under federal law regardless of any state law that may decriminalize or legalize such activity. Today's presentation is to provide you information on changes in Virginia's law. It's in no way intended to provide any advice, guidance, or assistance in violating any federal, state, or local laws. So today, as I said, we're going to discuss Virginia's recently passed marijuana law and what uh, entrepreneurs need to know about the legal framework of that law. We're going to provide an overview of Virginia's cannabis landscape as it is today. Then we're going to be discussing Virginia's new marijuana law. I'll then be turning it over to Attorney Hempel to discuss business and employment considerations along with Attorney Bebo. So, let's talk a little bit about Virginia's cannabis landscape in a little bit more detail so we can distinguish what the main focus of our discussion is going to be today. We're going to talk about three areas of Virginia's cannabis landscape. Pharmaceutical processors for medical cannabis, industrial hemp, and then Virginia's latest law, marijuana-related cannabis. Here's an overview of the pharmaceutical processor landscape in Virginia. This was instituted back in 2015 in Virginia, allowed the use and possession of CBD or THCA oil to treat certain conditions in children and later on in adults. That was later expanded over the years, as you can see in 2016, 18, and 19 across the state. It then expanded the spectrum of products that will be available that are available for treatment, including capsules, topicals, lozenges, lollipops and other related products. And then in 2020, Virginia allowed parents, patients and legal guardians to legally possess cannabis oil. Virginia's medical cannabis industry is located in four health service areas. There are, in fact, five health service areas. However, health service area one is vacant. That particular license was rescinded and it is now in litigation. So presently, there are only four health service areas in operation, number two through five in Virginia, and they are being operated by those companies. They are presently in operation and are dispensing medical cannabis products. Interestingly, as I indicated, a uh, flurry of uh, legislation in the federal government. There's also been additional legislation, and it didn't get a lot of attention in Virginia. Um, Governor North, the, the both the legislature in Virginia passed and Governor Northam signed House Bill 2281 and Senate Bill 1333, which as of July 1st will permit pharmaceutical processors to distribute and sell other products other than cannabis oil, and that includes botanical cannabis, usable cannabis and cannabis products. So they're gonna be able to offer more cannabis products at those pharmaceutical processors. But again, it's only to those who have a registration uh, and are authorized to do so under those statutes. It's not open for the general population. It's only open for those who have proper registration under the Board of Pharmacy and a recommendation from their physician. Next, we have Virginia's industrial hemp business. Industrial hemp was made legal by the 2018 Farm Bill. Previously, hemp had been illegal um, under the same Controlled Substances Act that makes marijuana illegal. The 2018 Agriculture Act removed hemp as defined under the Controlled Substances Act. Now it's defined specifically as containing no more than 0.3% THC by weight. So, that's a specific definition for hemp, but that is legal and it's regulated by a number of federal bodies as well as the Commonwealth of Virginia. The regulating body in the Commonwealth of Virginia to industrial hemp is the Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services. They're the primary regulator through December of 2021 and they will continue to operate the program this year as they did in previous years, consistently with the previous Farm Bill. Um, The current state of Virginia's law. up until July 1st, 2021, with regard to simple possession of cannabis, is that it was decriminalized back on July 1st of 2020, and it is a civil offense. There's a rebuttable presumption that a person who possesses no more than one ounce uses it for personal use. That is the law as it stands now until the new law becomes effective. So Virginia's new marijuana law, let's discuss it. it. So Senate Bill 1406 and House Bill 2312. This law was signed by Governor Northam last month. It has a staggered implementation, and I'm gonna be talking about that in a little more detail as we go along. That's important to understand. There's a number of provisions in this particular law that are effective July 1st of this year, while other provisions have a staggered implementation or ramp up. And some of those provisions need to be reenacted in the next legislative body in order for them to become effective we don't have time to cover all of the provisions of the law in the hour we have so we're going to focus on some key provisions so as of July 1st 2021 those 21 years or older can legally possess up to one ounce of marijuana without the intent to distribute it also allows home cultivation by those 21 years of older of up to four marijuana plants per household with certain conditions and it's important to note that that is per household not per person Still, as of July 1st, 2021, the sale of marijuana in the Commonwealth remains illegal. It is only this limited possession. It does not allow sales of marijuana in the Commonwealth as of July 1st, 2021. That is still considered illegal. In addition, the law creates a very large regulatory framework, with the primary regulator being the Virginia Cannabis Control Authority. We're going to discuss the VCCA in more detail in the upcoming slides. It also creates a number of programs directed at supporting cannabis businesses. I'm not gonna go through all of them here, but they include the Cannabis Equity Reinvestment Board and its accompanying fund. And the purpose of that fund is to directly address the impact of economic disinvestment, violence, and historic overuse of criminal justice responses to communities and individual needs. And its goal is to provide support to persons and families and communities that are historically and disproportionately targeted and affected by drug enforcement. It's also intended to offer scholarship opportunities and educational and vocational resources who have been adversely impacted by substance use, and awarding grants to support workforce development, mentoring programs, and job training and placement services. It also creates the Cannabis Equity Loan Program and accompanying fund, which I'm going to discuss in more detail it allows for the expungement and in certain cases, resentencing for marijuana related offenses. It states that consumer and retail sales may begin on January 1st, 2024. These provisions have to be reenacted by the legislature next session. It also permits a local referendum on the prohibition of retail marijuana stores. That also has to be reenacted in 2022. It also imposes new taxes and modifies and creates criminal penalties it also funds a public awareness campaign on health and safety risks and training for law enforcement so let's talk a little bit about the governing authority the virginia cannabis control authority the newly created vcca has broad authority to administer the state legalized cannabis business in virginia and it is implemented january 1st 2021 it's tasked with establishing the regulatory scheme for all aspects of the cannabis program in the Commonwealth. It needs to promulgate regulations by July 1st, 2023. It cannot adopt them, however, until July 1st, 2022, because they have to be approved by the Cannabis Oversight Commission. But the regulations are gonna cover everything with regard to the cannabis business in Virginia. I've listed a number of them here. It'll establish the regulatory scheme for manufacturer testing and wholesaling. Licensing structures, and that includes denials, revocations, and a hearing process for those who are denied a license. It's also going to establish the criteria and preferences for uh, evaluation of social equity license applicants, and I'm gonna discuss that in a little bit more detail. Vertical integration that means um, allowing persons and when i say persons here in the law persons is defined as not only uh, natural persons but also businesses so whenever i say persons it's interchangeable it limits vertical integrations to small businesses the goal is to ensure all licensees have a meaningful opportunity to participate in the market so it does allow or is supposed to allow certain persons to be granted or have an interest in a license in more than one of the categories, and I'll talk about those categories coming up, but it's going to be very limited. What constitutes a small business under the law? It's not specifically defined. We'll have to wait and see what the regulations say once they're promulgated by the VCCA. The VCCA is also going to provide for prohibitions and restrictions on licenses in a locality or region, and they're also going to be able to establish the number of licenses the person may be granted to operate an establishment in a single locality it's also going to put limits on allowable square footage of marijuana stores presently they're set at 1500 square feet it's going to establish standards for preferences for qualified social equity applicants and interestingly um, the virginia cannabis control authority can start accepting applications beginning July 1st, 2023, but they must give preference to qualified social equity applicants between July 1st, 2023 and January 1st, 2024. It also requires the VCCA to evaluate geographic dispersion of retail stores Um, under their regulations. They're required to evaluate the dispersion of those stores after the issuance of 100, 200, and 300 licenses. Again, much of this must be reenacted in 2022. The VCCA does have to start writing their regulations once they become active in, on July 1st, 2021. But a number of these provisions that I previously mentioned must be reenacted in 2022 in order for them to become effective. So I talked about social equity license applicants the way the law is written this is the definition of what constitutes a social equity license applicant they have to have lived or been domiciled in virginia for at least 12 months and they have to be one of these five categories and i'm not going to read through this to all of you as far as the first one is concerned um with 66 percent ownership of persons who have been convicted or adjudicated delinquent for misdemeanor violations of certain offenses those would be the offenses 248.1 sale gift or distribution of marijuana 250.1 possession of marijuana and 265.3 sale of drug paraphernalia you can see that this is to- totally focused on residents of the commonwealth because if you notice with um social equity license applicant number five at least 66 66- percent ownership by a person who graduated from a historically black college located in the commonwealth not a college outside of the commonwealth but located in the commonwealth so these are the categories of social equity licensed applicants who according to the laws it's written now will get preference the amount of preference will be determined by the regulations written by the VCC VCCA but they should they are supposed to get preference with the initial uh, group of license applications. The law also creates the Virginia Cannabis Equity Business Loan Program. Along with the the VCCA is to administer this program with community development financial institutions. The purpose of this program is to provide opportunity for qualified social equity applicants to start up a cannabis business. It's going to provide technical assistance, low to zero interest loans to qualified applicants, and support to allow qualified social equity applicants to apply and successfully run a cannabis uh, business in the Commonwealth. Now with regard to the license, these are the license types that are listed in the legislation. Now the VCCA has the responsibility for developing its regulations to limit the number of licenses as they see fit however the legislature has determined at this time that these are the maximum number of licenses that can be issued under these different classes cultivation facilities are 450 there's a class a and a class b license they're separated out class a's are based on number of plants and or size of the grow area whereas class b are are uh, restricted by the uh, potency of the crop manufacturing facility at 60, wholesaler at 25, retail stores at 400. You'll notice that there's not a limit uh, for number of testing licenses. However, there is a restriction. A person that has an interest in a marijuana testing facility license cannot have an interest in a licensed marijuana cultivation facility, manufacturing facility, wholesaler, or retail marijuana store it is up to the VCCA to determine the application or license fees and any waiver of those fees those are not listed in statute they'll have to come with the regulations additionally it's important to know that this uh, limitation on licenses does not include those issued to pharmaceutical processors of medical cannabis or industrial hemp processors that are registered they too can get licenses although they're not permitted to get a license in more than one uh category unless they pay uh, a one million dollar fee to the fund but they are allowed to get these licenses as well so this cap does not include any licenses issued to those businesses that are already operating under current state law and with that i will turn over the presentation to mr Hempel to discuss some business considerations thank you jonathan Um, i'm going to talk about First, we're going to
1: talk about structuring the business and I'm going to preface this by saying that uh, a regular portion of my business every year as a lawyer is undoing messes caused by people going into business together without thinking through all the issues. Um, I really don't have a problem with LegalZoom because I get a, um, I get uh, significant fees each year undoing them. Um, the there are four basic types of entity that you can operate your business out of the sole proprietorship and the partnership I'm just not even going to talk about uh, because you just shouldn't do it because your personal assets are at risk for every business liability so we're going to focus on corporation um, which is uh, a separate entity and you will you, you've You've heard of them before. Uh, It is uh, a a business entity that has uh, shareholders and it's run by officers and a board of directors. And then you have a limited liability company, which is similar. It's kind of a hybrid between a corporation and a partnership. Now, this is going to be very, very basic for some of you, uh, but others uh, have not gone through these specific issues. So. I'm going to try not to be too basic but uh, there are some some things that we need to to talk about and and one one of the biggest problems that I see out there is that there's this thing called the internet, uh, and not everything that you read on it is true. Uh, I get a lot of people coming to me to say, "Well, I'm supposed to set up my LLC in uh, Wyoming, therefore I'm never going to get any tax." It's just it just doesn't work that way. So be really really careful uh, about implementing anything that you read on the internet uh, with things like selection of entity and uh, business taxation there's a lot of misinformation out there so one of the things that uh, we'll talk about is you know what is this entity who owns it that's important who controls it you know who's signing contracts and making decisions and uh, what what are the liabilities ancillary to these to these uh, organizations And again, I'm not going to talk about the sole proprietorship because anyone who decide who wants to go in as a sole proprietor, you're making a big mistake and I just simply know no practicing attorney uh, worth his license is going to uh, recommend that. Same thing with partnerships. It's an outdated concept. All right, corporation. uh, It is a formal business entity. You uh, have a a filing with the the state corporation commission that is going to give you your certificate. uh, And at that time, you are a legal entity. Um, the shareholders own it so if you're going into business with a few uh, friends uh, acquaintances family members um, you are going to be purchasing shares or contributing capital to the corporation to receive shares uh, and that is going to be the evidence of your ownership who controls it there's a kind of a a three level ownership and and control the the stockholders own it and what they do is they appoint a board of directors and the board of directors kind of oversees the general uh business venture and they appoint officers who control the day-to-day operations now you can be all three you can be a shareholder you can be a director and an officer that's okay or you can be one of the three or two of the three that's 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 perfectly okay What liabilities are involved the best thing and this is almost number one in any presentation about business entity selection is uh, you are going into this and you are going to risk the money that you put into the business but you don't want to risk your house uh, your Kids college fund, your retirement, you don't want to risk any of that, so you want to keep your personal assets separate, so uh, the great benefit of a corporation is uh, yes, if you get sued, your business assets are at risk, but your personal assets are not. Um, corporations come in two basic flavors. The standard uh, default corporation is what's called a C corporation, uh, which is for for the subtitle in the uh, subchapter in the Internal Revenue Code for how it's taxed. So a C corporation is taxed at the corporate level. So the corporation brings in $100. They're going to be paying tax at the corporate rate of currently 21%. It'll go up to 28 with the new tax bill. And then if you distribute money out to these st- stockholders by a dividend or a distribution, uh, it's going to be taxed again to the shareholder at their rate. Uh, and so you have taxed on the same dollar that came in, you're being taxed on it twice. So that's not really attractive to people. So for smaller businesses, they have um, in, they instituted the S corporation, which is basically a flow through so that dollar comes in it does not get taxed at the corporate level uh, but it flows through and gets taxed to the owners the, the stockholders the llc uh again it is a formal uh, entity that you f- file uh, articles of organization with the state corporation commission and then you have a business it is owned not, not by stockholders but now by members there is two basic ways to structure the the control uh, or the management of an LLC, one is just by the members. Uh, so if you have three members, you all get together and you you vote on on how to do things and divvy up the tasks and you just operate that way. The other way is to to appoint managers, uh, and a manager can be a member or or does not have to be a member. So maybe the there's three members who are owners of the LLC and they just want to appoint someone who's really good at uh operating a uh whatever a a marijuana dispensary uh and they appoint that person as the manager of the company uh very similar to the corporations this is why i didn't even talk about sole proprietors and, and partnerships because we already have two vehicles uh that are very good at protecting your personal assets so the llc provides the same um the, the same liability protection as the corporation. Okay, um, back in law school, you you have this, this phrase that runs through your head throughout your entire business association class. It's called piercing the corporate veil. And it's lawyer speak for uh, how does someone get to your personal assets even if you have an LLC or a corporation? Um, the good thing is Virginia is a very good state in which to, to do business. They respect the corporate form and they don't they don't like to pierce the corporate veil or disregard that llc or that corporation but if you uh, if you do not recognize the formalities uh, which are gonna be keeping up your corporate charter or your LLC charter, um, keeping a corporate record book and a record of the members, uh, minutes of meetings uh, and having a separate bank account. Um, that's if you know you have to do these very simple things. If you do not do that, if you just run it out of your own personal bank account and call yourself a corporation, it's not gonna work. They're They're gonna be able to get to your personal assets. So it's really important to know how to structure it, know what the formalities are, and to separate funds Uh, you don't you don't go in uh, and and buy groceries out of your business account you if you need money to pay for groceries then you write yourself either a salary check or a bonus check or a distribution check uh, and then you and you put that into your personal account and then you can buy your groceries but you just you do not mix business and pleasure or business and personal uh, activities Uh, there are also some other ways uh, if you're going to fraudulently use this corporation pretending you're a corporation even though you weren't they're going to be able to get to your personal assets Um, and you will have personal personal liability if as a uh, manager or an officer if you breach a fiduciary duty to that corporation uh, in other words like stealing from the company or um, uh, using trade secrets to to go and set up a, a competitor things like that then they can get to you uh okay so just some basic things you have to do when you form your business you have to get an EIN that's your IRS tax number uh you're gonna have to go down to um city hall and get a business license in any location in which you are operating in uh state of Virginia the state corporation commission is where you file your um original articles of incorporation or organization and you will have annual filings uh, with them um insurance if you have employees you're going to be getting workers compensation uh you're going to want a general liability um if you are leasing space you may want to put some um uh, renters insurance or, or some type of commercial renters insurance uh and you know just you, you want to ensure your assets as best you can uh, and then you're going to want to assemble a team again um i, I undo people's uh, self-made uh, documents all the time, or when they come and practically draw things on a napkin or, or just a, a Word file that they just made up, um, you're going to want to talk with an attorney um, about setting up. Because there's there's just a lot of issues. So you get into business with your your two uh, friends and you maybe you know each other for a long time and you're great friends and you're just going to make millions of dollars and you would never have a problem with any of your friends. And the problem is that money happens Uh, and whenever there's money involved and when there's difficult decisions, people can disagree and you're going to need a method for uh, solving those disagreements and you want to just resolve issues like well what happens if someone dies what happens to their shares what happens if they're disabled they're not they're not dead yet so but they they can't operate what happens if they simply just don't like the business and want to go move to California and get into real estate or whatever it is. Uh, You want to address these exit strategies ahead of time. And you do that in the corporation with a stockholder agreement or an LLC with an operating agreement. These are somewhat long and involved documents, um, but what they do is they get all the issues out on the table ahead of time before you get into business when it might be too late to deal with some of these issues. So it's important, I think, to speak with an attorney uh, about how to set up your business ahead of time. The accountant, uh, especially if you have employees, you're running payroll, you want someone who knows what they're doing, who can file your business entity returns and help you with um, all of the accounting issues that uh, arise when you're running a business. Your bookkeeper is going to be the person recording all of your uh, uh, income and expenses on a daily basis. That's really important. They're going to be working with the accountant to make sure you've got all your records kept. And this is going to be a regulated in- industry. You're going to need to keep good records. Um, insurance broker, you may want for um, the various covers as we talked about. Um, you may have IT issues. You might, you know, who knows, maybe you get into, you're, you're growing so well that you implement a 401k plan. So you're going to want to benefits advisors. But, uh, you Going to want a banker, um, so you just going to you, you don't do this alone. There's there's professionals out there who who love helping businesses, um, and we're we're here to help with with all these issues. Before we get to banking, and that's Ann's one. I did want to talk about the taxes uh in in just in general there is a along with the new act there's a brand new marijuana tax um and you know when, whenever you sell something in virginia it's going to be subject to sales tax in hampton roads where i am right now it's it's six percent and five percent in many other areas of the state six percent in some others depending on um the very recent legislation but so you set you sell a widget and and there's going to be a six percent sales tax well Uh, In order to raise more money, they levied a 21% marijuana tax at the state level, which is in addition to the state uh, retail sales and use tax. Uh, So you're already up at 27% tax, and then they are going to allow the localities to uh, levy an additional 3% on top of that. Uh, This is gonna be a monthly tax. Uh, that you are going to be filing uh, a a monthly return anyone who's been in the restaurant business or in in other retail business knows that you're basically filing monthly returns with all your numbers on it uh, and you're going to be remitting that tax they um, have a provision in this act where if they don't feel comfortable uh, they have a lot of wiggle room to make you bond The taxes. So that's going to be something that is a potential personal liability if you make sales and do not collect the tax and remit it to the government on a monthly basis. Um, And I'm going to turn it over to Ann, who's going to talk about the banking issues.
2: Thanks, Jeff. So, Jeff just um, threw some cold water on your dreams of making a fortune in the marijuana industry, and I'm going to add a little more cold water to it, in addition to all the tax issues that he just talked about and how the government's going to take a massive bite out of your profits. One thing you need to be aware of getting into the marijuana industry is that, as Jonathan said at the beginning of the presentation, it's still illegal under federal law. So as a result, a lot of the systems that are set up to help other businesses are not available to marijuana businesses. Um, Jeff mentioned that, you know, at the beginning of a business relationship, you want to have clear exit strategies. And unfortunately, um, in any industry, a lot of new businesses fail. Most businesses, when they fail, they have um, access to the bankruptcy courts to um, purge them of their debts or help them restructure so they can turn the business around and continue to be or become profitable again bankruptcy law is foreclosed is not available to marijuana businesses because marijuana is illegal under federal law so there have been a lot of cases of businesses that are involved in the marijuana industry including businesses that are indirectly involved in the marijuana industry such as a real estate company that um leases space to a marijuana business those businesses being denied bankruptcy protection because it's a violation of the federal law so the fact that your business derives some income even if it's only a portion of the income from marijuana you're not eligible to um seek recourse through the bankruptcy protection so that's one handicap that businesses in this industry have another is banking um it's gotten a little better um, At the very beginning, when businesses in other states first started to allow marijuana, you would hear horror stories about these businesses not having access to banks, having to deal strictly in cash, and doing things like maintaining warehouses where they stored their cash because they couldn't use banks, and actually having a problem with um, the cash disintegrating, rotting, before it could be used. Um, It is a little better now, um, but there still are limits on access that marijuana related businesses have to banks um there is uh um there are several laws that apply to banks that um are in place to um, prevent banks from being used for money laundering or for other criminal activity and they require banks to report um any suspicious activity to the feds they have to let the um the Federal authorities know if they see any sign of criminal activity in the banking that they're um, managing. There are um, there's the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. There's guidance regarding that. Well, um, Johnson mentioned at the very beginning of the coal memos and those were memos from the Justice Department um, several years ago that were meant to reassure businesses and banks that even though marijuana is illegal under federal law, the Justice Department isn't going to come after you. They're not going to enforce or prosecute um, someone for violating those marijuana laws if the business, such as banking, is being run consistently with state cannabis laws. So basically, as long as you're complying with your state laws, we the feds aren't going to come after you, so you don't have to be as worried, banks, that you're going to um, be in trouble as so long as you're complying with state law. Well, in 2014, Attorney General Jeff Sessions, under the Trump administration, rescinded the Cole memos, Uh, but they've still basically been followed. And what the Cole memos do is they also set up a list of priorities that the federal government will prosecute certain crimes um, regarding marijuana. So, for example, they want to keep marijuana out of the hands of children. If there's an indication that you're um, selling to children, the feds will come after you. Um, they want to keep marijuana revenue away from criminal organizations. So if there's an indication that your business is linked up with the mob, they'll come after you. Things like that. But the otherwise, under the Cole memos, the Justice Department and the federal government is kind of taking this hands-off approach, so long as you're complying with state law, and that applies to banking, too. So... Um, The Treasury Department, um, I I mentioned FinCEN Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, they have guidance that they've um, issued to banks saying, it's basically showing how banks can service marijuana related businesses without running afoul of federal law and being subject to prosecution. Nonetheless, a lot of banks are hesitant to work with marijuana businesses because of this uncertainty, because it is technically still illegal under federal law. So a lot of banks are very hesitant, and this makes it really hard for marijuana businesses to access the banking services that all businesses need in order to operate. Um, There is efforts or there are efforts in Congress to try to address this problem. There's the secure and fair enforcement. Banking Act safe. It um, has floated around Congress for a while. In April of this year, it passed the House yet again. And now we're waiting to see what the Senate does with it. I am cautiously optimistic. It seems to have a lot of bipartisan support. This is not a partisan issue at all. Um, People on both sides of the aisle recognize that more than, I think, half the states now have legalized marijuana in some form and these businesses need to have access to banks just like any other business so um both republicans and democrats recognize this is something that needs to be fixed so the safe act if it passes would prohibit federal banking regulators from penalizing depository institutions for providing banking services to legitimate cannabis related businesses so as i said we're waiting to see what congress does with that what the senate does with that um, fingers crossed it would solve a lot of problems But the bottom line to walk away with with regard to banking is um, banks can service marijuana-related businesses, but the regulations are very um, unclear and a lot of banks are nervous about it and are reluctant to do it for that reason. So another issue, another hurdle you might run into is that the SBA um, does not allow loans. The SBA does not provide loans to businesses that derive revenue from marijuana-related businesses. That includes both direct marijuana business and indirect marijuana business. So direct marijuana businesses are those that grow, produce, process, distribute or sell marijuana products regardless of the amount um, applies to personal medical use, even if the business is legal under state law. Those are direct marijuana businesses and they're not eligible for SBA loans, The indirect marijuana businesses are also not eligible for SBA loans. In an indirect marijuana business, is one that drives any gross revenue for, from the previous year from sales to a direct marijuana business of products or services that could reasonably be determined to support the use growth enhancement or other development of marijuana. So basically, vendors that service direct marijuana businesses um, are in danger of being class- classified as an indirect marijuana business and therefore being denied SBA loans, and that, of course, means that um, the PPP loans that were made available last year as part of the pandemic, marijuana businesses were not eligible for PPP loans. And um, there have been another a number of instances where the federal government has offered assistance like that. And if you're a marijuana business or either a direct or indirect marijuana-related business, you're not eligible for that type of financial assistance, which is one of the reasons why... Um, some of the provisions of the Virginia law that that would provide some funding to socially disadvantaged groups may be a real opportunity for businesses that otherwise wouldn't have access to capital because they can't get SBA loans. Um, The SBA has uh, this guidance, this SOP document. I have the citation at the top of the slide, SOP 50105K. You can find it online. And it talks about, again, how businesses that derive income are not from marijuana are not eligible for SBA loans um, or other assistance. They do, however, allow hemp-related businesses to um, receive assistance from the SBA. So if you're a hemp business, as defined under um, the 2018 Farm Bill, a business that grows, produces, or processes, distributes, or sells products made from hemp, um, you would be eligible for SBA Uh, assistance, but again, marijuana businesses are not. Another piece of legislation that we're keeping our eye on in the federal government and Congress is the Marijuana Opportunity Reinvestment and Expungement Act, the MORE Act. This law would solve a great deal of problems because it would take cannabis out of the list of scheduled substances under the Controlled Substances Act. So if this law passes, marijuana will no longer be illegal on a federal level. States could still say it's illegal in their state, but on a federal level, it would no longer be illegal. Um, This would decriminalize the manufacture, distribution, and possession of marijuana on a federal level. It would create an opportunity trust fund. It would impose taxes, going back to what Jeff talked about. It would create a community investment program. This law most recently passed the House in December, um, and now we're waiting to see what the Senate does with it. And again, we're seeing bipartisan support for this, less so than with the SAFE Act I spoke about a minute ago. But still, I think this law does have a shot and it would solve a great deal of problems. Okay, so now I'm going to talk briefly about some employment issues and considerations that you should be aware of. Um, So if you are one of the lucky ones who gets a license from the Virginia Cannabis Control Authority, Um, either for retail or processing or wholesale, any of the licenses that the Virginia Cannabis Control Authority is going to be um, issuing. If you get one of those licenses, it comes with certain labor requirements. Um, And this was kind of a sneak addition to the law that went in at the last minute, and I found very surprising. Um, This law requires that if you get a license, the The VCCA can suspend or revoke your license if it has reasonable cause to believe that you have failed to remain neutral regarding any union organizing efforts by employees, including car check recognition and union access to employees. That provision I found absolutely shocking for a state that has always touted itself as a right to work state, um, which means that we basically don't uh, encourage unionization here this is a sneak attack um, of, by the unions that's going to basically allow unions in um, this means if you're a licensee from the vcca and the union comes knocking you need to throw your door wide open you're not allowed to resist any unionizing efforts in your workplace uh, you can also lose your license if you fail to pay employees the prevailing wages as determined by the department of labor that part's very unclear to me because prevailing wages determined by the DOL that typically applies to federal contracts, there aren't going to be, there's no prevailing wage determination from the Department of Labor for the marijuana industry. So um, it's a little unclear as to what exactly that provision means. Um, the next one's a little clearer. You can lose your license if you classify more than 10% of your workers as independent contractors and the workers aren't owners in a worker owned cooperative. That's um, not a very surprising provision. And frankly, there's another Virginia law that creates a legal presumption that anyone that performs work for remuneration is an employee. So you really shouldn't be using independent contractors anyway. But um, as I said, you can lose your license if you do that. And then finally, you can lose your license if you've been convicted of a pattern or practice of employing unauthorized aliens in Virginia. Um, Another thing you should be aware of is with regards to your customers, and um, if, if any of you are in a situation where you have employees, a lot of employers, most employers do drug testing. And a lot of people are wondering, well, how does this new um, world of marijuana legalization impact drug testing in the workplace? Testing typically reveals THC. It doesn't reveal CBD. So um, it's. If someone's getting their CBD from a hemp-based source, it shouldn't contain THC, but sometimes it does. And um, some tests, basically the testing is not very accurate. Some tests only test for cannabinoids, both THC and CBD, and they don't distinguish between the two. Um, As I'm sure many of you are aware, testing will only show if the person consumed THC within the last several weeks. It's not very useful in telling whether or not the person is currently impaired. There's some very sophisticated drug tests you can get, but they're pretty expensive, so a lot of employers don't use them that um, can get into how much THC is in the person's system. And that can help pinpoint whether or not the person's impaired. But it's a very complex matter. It's not as easy as um, you know a blood alcohol content to sell- tell someone's drunk or not. Um, If the person has been using marijuana or CBD even if the marijuana is illegal under federal law the person might be entitled to an accommodation if they're taking it for a medical condition they might be entitled to an accommodation not for the marijuana usage but for their underlying medical condition so that can um, restrict an employer's ability to do anything about the fact that the person is using marijuana but it all it all turns on state law so another recent change to Virginia law is in conjunction with the marijuana legalization laws that Jonathan talked about, Virginia did implement a very limited employment protection for um, people who use cannabis oil. So under this new Virginia law, employers are prohibited from discharging, disciplining, or discriminating against an employee for the employee's lawful use of cannabis oils pursuant to valid written certification by a practitioner for diagnosed condition or disease. So This would be people who have those written certifications that Jonathan talked about, and they're getting um, cannabis oil from one of the pharmaceutical processors for a diagnosed condition or disease. They have a limited protection in employment under Virginia law, where they can't be discharged or discriminated against because of their cannabis use. However, um, they can still be disciplined or fired if they're impaired at work. And Again, that gets into what I talked about in the last slide. How do you tell if someone's impaired at work because the drug testing is not very precise? Um, The employer can also prohibit possession of the oil during work hours. And then there's another, a further exception um, that allows a little more freedom to federal contractors. Employers are not required to commit any act that would cause the employer to be in violation of federal law or that would result in loss of federal contract or funding or would require any defense industrial-based sector employer to hire or retain employees who test positive for THC in excess of the limits I have there on the slide. So that's just um, something that employers need to be aware of and something that marijuana businesses need to be aware of. There is protection under Virginia law in a limited sense for cannabis oil use if the person has a diagnosed condition or disease. So that's the end of our presentation so thanks for joining us everybody
1: Thanks everybody All right bye